Hello, and welcome to my podcast, Sex, Love, and Addiction. This show was created to provide accurate expert information and support for those seeking insight into the painful realities of cheating and infidelity, sex and porn addiction, as well as the relationship between chronic drug abuse and paired sexual behavior, commonly known as chemsex. I'm your host, Dr. Rob Weiss, a licensed therapist, addiction specialist, sexologist, clinical educator, and author of 10 books on intimacy, addiction, sexuality, and relationship health. This podcast is a forum for discussing sex, love, and addiction in frank, fact-based, informative ways. My primary goal is to bring you clear advice, opinions, and feedback from some of the world's most renowned experts in human sexuality, trauma, addiction, mental health, and relationship intimacy. This show is sponsored by Seeking Integrity Treatment Programs, which are also dedicated to providing expert-focused, highly specialized residential treatment for men struggling with sex, porn, and related addictions. You can learn more about Seeking Integrity and my work there at www.seekingintegrity.com. Now let's get started. Hey folks, I've got a really terrific colleague on our show that today and and our topic is uh, one that I think is really important for addiction and also for relationships in terms of healing and it's very specific. We're talking about ADHD. So let me tell you about our guest, Dr. Todd Love. Dr. Todd Love is a licensed professional counselor, licensed attorney, and board certified coach. He runs a men's counseling and coaching practice in Athens, Georgia and online. Dr. Love wrote his dissertation on internet addiction and the DSM-5 and has co-authored multiple scholarly publications on the topic of behavioral addictions, including both sex addiction and internet pornography addiction. Welcome, Dr. Love. Thank you, Rob, for having me. It's an honor to be here. You know, I've got to ask that first question before we talk about ADHD, which is, you know, I've already interviewed Dr. Pat Love on this show, and she talked about the challenges of having a last name Love while she's also a psychotherapist. So I just want to ask you, has that been a challenge for you in your life? It's interesting. Some people have actually said, is that really your name? Or did you just change your name, you know, when you started this career? I'm like, no, uh-huh. it really is my name. So it's pretty fun. Well, I'm, I'm so glad that your parents didn't name you absolute or total or complete because then your name would be a problem. But since you are simply Dr. Love, we're in good shape. All right. So, sir, let's talk a little bit about ADHD. First of all, you know this is a show a lot about addiction, and I hear addicts and see addicts and work with addicts who struggle with this issue. So maybe just a general description of what ADHD is, maybe how the diagnosis came about. I know we used to look at hyperactivity as being a part of childhood and not adulthood, and now that's kind of changed. And So could you just give us a brief view of how we, what is ADHD and how does it identify itself at different stages of life? Sure. That's a great question. So they used to think that it was just a childhood disorder and it was really just a problem that boys struggled with. And that's because, you know, the behavioral problem of hyperactivity was more readily available in boys that overlooked a lot of the girls with ADHD because their primary symptom might be inattention. So they are just the space cadets or whatever. They're not the ones getting in trouble going to the principal's office. So that's why historically they thought it was just a young boy's problem. And do they now think that boys and girls are equally have the potential for ADHDs or it's still a kind of more of a boys issue? I believe it's an equal thing or more or less equal. Mm, Wow, that's great to know. Yeah. So we've missed out on a lot of girls. I'm just as an aside who might have had this issue who didn't get, of course, women don't, but they didn't get the attention they needed because they weren't a problem in the classroom. Exactly. 
What's changed in the field since we just looked at it as kids who are hyperactive kind of thing? So they used to think it was just a childhood thing and that, you know, we, I say we because I, you know, was diagnosed as a child, would outgrow it. And now they realize up to 80% of people carrying it through the lifespan, so it's not just outgrown. Uh, the thing is that the visible hyperactivity learns to be managed. So one person says, you know, it goes internal. And what that means, you know, some people, you know, there's lots of problems with the name attention deficit uh, disorder because they say we don't have a deficit, we've got a surplus. And our problem is we have a hard time managing it. So it'll jump over to there when it's supposed to be here. So the mind is always going and oftentimes not where, you know, I would like it to be. So I'm going to ask you a question as a therapist, um, because this is what comes to my mind when I hear about this. I've worked with people who are manic, you know, in in other words, they're bipolar and they're they're, they're that kind of manic, crazy stage where they're just doing everything and thinking about everything and running all around. And, you know, what's different? Is this just a a lesser degree of that or is this a whole different kind of issue? Yeah, that's it's a whole different thing. I'm glad you asked that. And I realized the way I just presented it made it sound like the mind might jump around more than it does. Oh, not at all. I think it's just good for people to understand. Sure. So, yeah, so when you know, I'm keeping pretty focused in our conversation, but lots of times, you know, you know, a common manifestation, I'm having a conversation with someone and I notice the word on the windowsill and I go over there and then I hear the ceiling fan, you know, is made a creep. And so we get distracted by all the stimulus that everybody has coming in, but their brains are better able to vet it out. So it's not like the racing mind that's just jumping to random things and all that. It's that we have a hard time managing all the different stimulus and not, you know, giving equal attention to the bird that I'm supposed to be giving to you in the podcast. And your personal journey with it is also a professional journey, which by the way, folks, I want to say to you that, you know, if you run into a therapist who is working with an issue and they have an issue, see that therapist. (laughs) As long as they have worked with that issue for a while and they have some safety and understanding, what better person to have work with you than someone has the kind of depth and empathy that someone like Dr. Love would have around someone with ADHD or I might have around someone with an addiction. And I just want to say that don't be afraid of those of us who have worked through our own issues and are now working with you. I think that's the best kind of therapist. So thanks, Dr. Love, for bringing that note in for us. So in terms of ADHD and addiction, so I heard this uh, number once that somewhere around 20% of what I would call intensity seekers, which are um, sex addicts, um, gambling addicts, spending and and, uh, stock market kind of people, that when you're into the intensity stuff, about 20% of that population really has an existing ADHD problem. And that's, that's either contributing to or is the primary issue rather than addiction. How do you see that? Yeah, I've seen the number range from 20% up to 40% of people with addiction issues actually have ADHD as their primary underlying thing that they are self-medicating or just engaging in, like you said, the novelty-seeking, thrill-seeking. Our minds kind of crave the next shiny thing. And so that can lead into uh, problem behavior patterns. I don't know if what I'm about to say makes any sense, but are you saying that the person who has ADHD and is also an addict is really struggling with addiction in particular because it offers all of the new stimulation and the new distractions and the constant sort of busyness that their brain desires or longs for or seeks out? Or are there other reasons why people with ADHD also become addicts? I think it's one of those questions where the answer is both. So the ADHD mind has um, a lot of biological similarities with the, um, the addiction-prone mind or person struggling with addiction. Can you speak without making us too brain crazy? How, what are the similarities or how does that work? 
Sure. Um, among the the ADHD brain is too complicated for me to be able to spout <laughs> about. Okay. You know, so the, the areas that the areas that overlap with what we're talking about here is uh, dopamine deficiencies, that midbrain circus, uh, uh, circuitry, where the impulse control impairment, the reward seeking, all that that is naturally impaired with the ADHD person. That is also what gets impaired with somebody with addiction. So we are more vulnerable to fall into addiction. We're more vulnerable to fall. You know. Um, be interested in the patterns. Like I said, you know, the next new shiny thing that seems fun, we jump on it. We could then be more vulnerable to get stuck into it. So I would imagine you would think that there's a lot of addicts out there who could either uh, have a lot faster recovery or be able to have a lot less shame or find their way to recovery if they were to have a diagnosis, if they were to find out that they had this issue because it would help. Absolutely. How would I know Dr. Love, if I was with somebody who was had ADHD and they they perhaps it wasn't diagnosed and medicated, what, what would it be like to be with them? Would I notice it? That's a good question. You know, in order to properly get the ADHD diagnosis, the active addiction would need to be quelled somewhat because those you know the behavioral symptoms are so overlapping that it would be hard to know. You know, are your out of control sexual behaviors because you have an unmedicated ADHD? Or is it because you've got an addiction brain going on and that's what's driving it? So that gets to a, a peeve of mine, and that is a lot of treatment centers don't even screen for ADHD coming in. So they look for, you know, any of the mood disorders, anxiety disorders, thought disorders, but all that stuff, yeah, but something that's ADHD, it gets overlooked. Then the second part of that problem is people that are already diagnosed and that are coming into treatment. A lot of times, if they're already medicated, treatment centers make them stop their medication because stimulant medications are addictive for the non-ADHD brain. But the ADHD brain, it actually, you know, it's a paradoxical effect. It settles us down. It helps us focus. It doesn't jack us up like it does someone who's, you know, abusing Adderall. Note to our psychiatrists, if you're working with addicts, please don't take the ADHD off their medications. They need it to, to get through recovery. Yeah. So a lot of times they will, they'll fall back to Stratera, which is a non-controlled substance. But the problem with that is that, you know, Eli Lilly themselves says it takes four to six weeks to start working. By then, someone's already potentially washed out of the treatment program because they couldn't pay attention. They couldn't sit still in group. They couldn't do all the things that they need. And so, and even worse, that can recapitulate the, you know, some of the original traumas of not being able to fit in where we need to fit in. And that's part of it too. We haven't really talked about it, but there's a whole social issue that comes up for a kid who feels like, what's wrong with me? I can't focus and I'm not doing as well. And who starts to blame themselves and see it themselves as a failure because of an undiagnosed issue. Yeah. I think the shame core is really profound for people with ADHD. Even once it had been diagnosed and on medication, like I've been on medication for over, you know, I started at six, elementary school, middle school, all that stuff. It's still hard. You know, the, they say, you know, we're non-neurotypicals in a neurotypical world. So another expert in the field said the current school system is inherently hostile to the ADHD mind. You know, it's interesting you say that because I, I, I remember, and this is not and not as recent as at times as we're in now, but, you know, a good 20 years ago, I remember listening to young people who had not had ADD diagnosed and they or ADHD and they were, you know, it's interesting. Many of them had, gra had uh, moved to art or moved to other sort of or mechanics or other kinds of creative experiences that didn't involve so much the written word so that they could express their creativity and express their intelligence in ways that felt more native to them. And of course, you don't necessarily get validated in school for that, not in the same way as math, science, and history. So kids fall behind, they start to feel bad about themselves, their parents get mad at them, they feel like a failure. And if it's not diagnosed, it goes on kind of like that. 
And then the person walks around with low self-esteem and thinking they can't do any. So this is a pretty serious, why don't we screen everybody for ADHD? And, and actually, let me go back a, a step with that. I remember people talking about ADHD and how do you understand it? And it seemed to me, everything I remember is it's not an easy test. It's not like you just answer 10 questions and you know if you have ADHD or not. Right. And that's a not controversial area of the field, I guess, just undetermined area of the field. So some people think the neuropsychological testing is the way to go. And that is required for accommodations in the school system or, you know, in other places like that. But again, Dr. Barkley, the kind of the top in the field says, you know, we can focus our attention occasionally. That's not his word. But so that testing isn't always the best. Um, There's the computerized testing that is just testing sustained focus, the performance test. But the way that they think is really the best way to do it is looking through the lifespan, a lot, of, a lot of collateral interviewing. So talking to parents, to teachers, to people that we've grown up with, getting behavioral surveys from a whole bunch of sources, as well as the clinical interview with the ADHD person and the other types of testing. Then you can really get a, okay, this is a lifespan thing. This person has been struggling. His parents said, it, you know, at 10, has got kicked out of high school. You know, all these different things come together for the full story. Hey there, I sure hope you're enjoying this Sex, Love, and Addiction podcast. Before we continue, I'd like to remind you that if you or someone you know or love needs treatment for sex addiction, porn addiction, or co-occurring drug problems, Seeking Integrity can help. For more information, please visit our website at www.seekingintegrity.com. That's seekingintegrity.com. Or call us at 747-234-4325. What is it like? I, I can't even imagine for that ADHD 28-year-old who's sitting in your office with a lifetime of crashing and burning, and you say to them, you know, I think I have something that can help you. Because the kind of thing that you can help with, with something like this, can be a miracle. I mean, this is truly your life can change by taking a pill kind of thing, if I'm not incorrect. Can you say more about that? Yeah. And there's a whole, and like at the ADHD conferences and stuff, there's whole, not tracks, but presentations on what are the one I remember saying, you know, you got your, you just got your diagnosis as an adult. Now what? Because everything does change. You know, there's a tendency to look back and just remember one guy, he was early forties he got diagnosed. He, he took his meds for the first time. He came in, it makes me emotional. And he cried for the whole session. He's like, I can see clearly now if I had been diagnosed at 10, I wouldn't have dropped out of school. I wouldn't have gone to jail. I wouldn't have this, that, or the other. Nobody saw it. And now I had this whole history of pain and I can finally see clearly. And do you think it's that, and I'm going to be really kind of brutally honest here, do you think it's really that clear? Do you really think that someone like that wouldn't have had a lot of struggles had they had this diagnosed and handled? Or I can't help but think there must have been other issues, parent issues, whatever, in their lives. Sure. Yeah. Um, nothing ever goes to a, a single source. But um, you know, statistically speaking, there's a higher rate of pretty much all the problematic behaviors, dropout, drug abuse, incarceration you know, for the non-medicated ADHDers. And when you talk about, you know, and this is very compelling to me, you talked about people who've ended up with horrible consequences and or people who are in addiction centers and they don't realize or they're not tested for ADHD. I can imagine there are people who enter the legal system and they have no idea that this actually has something wrong with them. I don't hold a lot in my head very well, so I don't remember the, where the study came from. It's an ADD thing or the statistic, but I think it was in Norway or whatever. They, they actually studied um, inmates and did some testing and found a huge percentage of inmates had an undiagnosed ADHD 
because they just weren't able to properly control their behaviors, make the right decisions, regulate themselves. And so they wind up in prison. That is a very sad thing. Um, and I, I absolutely concur because I see it and I work with it. And and it really just speaks to the whole issue of how misunderstood mental health issues are in the in the legal system on every level. You know, someday, someday, Dr. Love, they will turn to us and say, gee, we're tired of putting all these people in prison. Can you help us? <laughs> Wouldn't that be novel? It would be really a wonderful thing because, you know, for somebody like that who can take a pill and think more clearly and be more productive and feel better about themselves, which doesn't happen with every disease, but that one, yes, uh, would yeah. be a pretty wonderful thing. I've heard that ADHD is the most medication responsive um, disorder in psychiatry. And let me explain to folks what that means. I mean, I, I, I think I can be a little expert in this. If you, a lot of times when you take a psychiatric medication, like an, a depression medication or an, some anxiety medications, you don't get an effect right away. It takes often weeks before you begin to see much more than side effects. And the nature of ADD, my understanding is, is that because you're acquiring the stimulation, when you supply it externally, the brain kind of calms down just right then and there. And you can think more clearly and be more focused. That's exactly right. One of the main reasons I wanted you to be on the show, and I'm so glad you are, is, and I think this is the issue that really speaks to everybody that, or many of the people who are listening to this podcast, is about relationships. And so, Dr. Love, let me tell you something personal. I'll give a little disclosure. I'm married to someone who has ADHD, and I didn't know that. I've been married for 18 years. And when I got involved with my husband, he was, uh, you know, just really bright, and I never occurred to me. And as we started to live together over the years, I would get, I started to get angry and angry and angrier because the things that were important to me, like keeping our house clean, just didn't seem to be important to him. And when I, he would cook, the dishes would be in the sink. And when he would take off his clothes, they would be on the floor and he would start one thing and then he'd be doing something else. And I would be nice about it. I would challenge about it. I would correct about it. I would say, eventually, if you love me, <laughs> this is where it gets to. If you loved me, you would understand that I don't want to come home with a, dish, a, a sink full of dishes. When I do, it makes me feel like you don't care about me. And I get blank stares. And sometimes, why is that a big deal? And why can't you just relax about that? And I truly can say, Dr. Love, that this issue really came pretty close to ending my relationship. I could not tolerate the missed appointments, the lack of follow through, the lack of organization, the, the mess that I was living in. But I really love this person. And I went to his psychiatrist and I said, look, <laughs> I've been reading books and this is what they say. And I think, and of course, it, you know, here's this man who was already in his 30s and no one had in his entire life diagnosed this. I won't say that I have the perfect relationship now, but I understand the difference between what his own challenges are and caring for me. And I, I bet that you hear this a lot, like where, where a couple will say, you know, if he would just do this or she would follow through on that, or, you know, they must know what this means to me kind of thing. It doesn't matter that you know what it means to us. You are working in the kitchen and then you hear something on TV and you've left the room. That's just how it goes. Um, so tell us a little bit about uh, couples who might be able to recognize this, look at this. How does this show up in relationships? I mean, I've said a few things. Can you fill that in a little, a little bit more? Sure. And I'll, I'll reference who I think is one of the, the top authors in the field, Melissa Orlov, O-R-L-O-V. She has um, written two books. The most recent one, I think, is The Couple's Guide to Thriving with ADHD. And it is the story that you just told. 
you know, there's a huge percentage of relationships with an undiagnosed ADHD partner that fails for these reasons. And she talks about how the non-ADHD partner, understandably, you know, without realizing it's ADHD, takes it as disrespect. My needs aren't as important as your needs. And so, you know, when just that whole dynamic goes on, and when in reality, like you said, you know, my brain got distracted. Oh, that's important on TV. I'm going to go over there and I burn the dinner or I forget the dishes or I forget to take the trash out because that's not my native skill set. And it just didn't occur to me or I just got distracted or, and that brings shame too for that person. And I don't think we as partners realize that. Don't you love me? Aren't you going to just do these simple, why can't you just pick up your, you know, we, we end up becoming parents to our partners. That's exactly right. Yeah, there's two things in there coming on. Um, one thing she finds is that one of the impacts is unhealthy relationship roles, the power imbalance, basically the parent-child dynamic. You know, the non-ADHD partner is having to constantly look over the shoulder and remind and all this stuff. And then the second part is what I think she calls the what is it behavior then a partner then response then response cycle because if I'm the ADHD or and I'm not doing the thing, how my partner responds to it could be helpful and empathetic, or it could induce shame, which then furthers my issue. And then I might lash out and the cycle just keeps going and going. And what you said, Dr. Love, about a book, I can't, I, I know this seems simple. We all think, oh, a self-help book, well, that, you know, who hasn't read a bunch of self-help books? But on this particular issue, I really have to validate what's being said. I needed, now I'm a PhD, like I've had lots of education. I had no idea how to negotiate my relationship with my spouse. I had no idea that we were going to have to renegotiate roles, reorganize and structure our relationship. And because I had to let go of my resentments. And so I'll give you an example. Um, I, you know, I wrote a book called Pro-Dependence, and I'm very proud of this book because it's about how people who have vulnerabilities can support each other with a lot of love rather than sort of seeing vulnerable people in relationship as being codependent. And because um, I see love as a strength and I see our attempts to help people we love as a strength. And I have to tell you that being in a ADD relationship feels very pro-dependent to me in, in this sense. I, I have learned that it's okay for me to wash dishes. You know, I just do the dishes now. That's what I do because that's how I want the house to look. If we're going to have vacation plans, I'm going to make them. It's not that he couldn't or wouldn't. It's just I want them made earlier. I want them made sooner. I want them made faster. I want them made in this way. And because his organizational skills are not the same as mine, rather than resenting the fact that he never picks up the computer to help with a vacation plan, I think, well, this is what I bring to the relationship. This is what I can do in the relationship. And there are other things that he brings to me. And I think that if you live with someone with ADHD, it requires a compromise, a, a consistent compromise of understanding and insight. Uh, in order to make it work. I don't know if that's what you found, but I, I think that's what it is for me. Yes, that's absolutely it. You know, say be aware of and empathetic to the differences in, you know, the, the partner and the non-ADHD partner. So that is just so critical. Well, for me to ever expect that the dishes were going to get washed, that was going to be a forever disappointment. <laughs> and so the solution, even with meds, the solution was Rob, if you want the dishes done, go do them. And I've learned that I don't really mind doing the dishes. And it doesn't mean that he doesn't love me. And he does care that I have a busy job and I still need to do the dishes because if I want them done, that's the way it is. Because my spouse will say, well, we can wait a couple of days to do those dishes. And I'm going to say, no, we can't. Right. And I'm sure there's things that he's good at and you're not. And he, he fits that other side. That's what makes it work. Which means I'm not being controlling. I'm just saying, if there are things I want done in a certain way, I'll do them. And there are other things that you do better. I'll tell you what, I have an ADD story for you, by the way. 
I hope you find this amusing. So when I was first uh, moving in with my spouse and we had this uh, apartment with boxes everywhere, like you do when you're first moving in. And I was busily moving the boxes, unpacking the boxes and fixing the boxes. And, and you know, we, the, the movers had just left and what was there to do, but put everything away, you know? And because it was work the next day and all that. And I couldn't find my partner. I went from room to room and I couldn't find him. And finally I went out and he was on this little postage stamp patio that we had at that time. And he was stringing Christmas lights. And I looked at him and my first thought was like, you know, what the F are you doing out here stringing Christmas lights? Because we have boxes inside that need to be unpacked. But my second thought was, oh, when the day's over, we can sit outside and it'll be pretty out here. Who would have thought of putting things, these things up but him? What a wonderful, lovely thing to do to make our home home. Now, I know that he did that because he's very ADD. He likes sparkling lights. Lights are his favorite thing. <laughs> uh, LED lights, you know, and he was just, he forgot about all the boxes. The first box he opened, I would imagine, there was a string of lights and he was like, oh, I got to go put these up. And that's where he went while I was with all the rest of the boxes. And it's those kinds of moments that I think couples who have ADHD have to take a breath and say, okay, this isn't going the way I want, but how can I appreciate what I'm getting in this relationship? Because it's so easy or much easier, I think, in these kind of relationships for us to see what we're not getting or how our needs aren't being met. And let me ask you, Dr. Love, how does that work for you? You have to negotiate your ADD, ADHD in a relationship or in many, maybe with you know people at work and all that. How do you do that? How do you make that work? So um, I got great advice from a, a friend and colleague of mine years ago, and that is the whole owning it. Um, I used to hate giving presentations because, you know, I could stammer, I can stand in front of the crowd, I can't stand still behind the podium, I pace and do all these things. And without people realizing it, I feared, and it was probably somewhat true, I look like I don't know what I'm doing. Because you're nervous, because you're scared, exactly. because you don't know. So I've put together a disclosure slide that says, I am ADHD, I am going to pace, my mind is going to jump around, just bear with me. And it took so much pressure off. Well, so there it is, owning your stuff and letting people... So let me just say what that is, just for the record. What Dr. Love does with his audiences is he makes himself vulnerable. He does something, and this is an example or a teachable moment when we can talk about intimacy. When I say to you, you know, I have these issues and you might judge me for them, but I'm going to do the best I can with them. I have made myself intimate to people by telling them things that I would rather hide. I would much rather, if I were Dr. Love, I'm sure, get through that get through that presentation, sailing through it, and everyone thinks I'm wonderful, but I can't do that. So in order to make it intimate for, for us to be real with each other, I have to tell you my truth. And that you do that with an audience, Dr. Love, I think is really fantastic. And it makes a difference, right? I also do that in my practice. I'm, in my intake with a new client, I tell them, I'm going to move around a lot. I'm going to squirm. I'm going to shift. It doesn't mean I'm uncomfortable with you. It's nothing you said. I just move. That's just how, my, how I work. And it takes so much tension away from the person on the other side of the um, conversation. By the way, folks, what Dr. Love is doing right now is being a role model for intimacy. You know, oftentimes when I talk to young couples and they're feeling distant from one another, for example, they're just having a night where they don't feel close, they'll try to pretend that they feel close just so the other one doesn't feel disappointed as opposed to saying, you know, I think I'll need a little space tonight. And then everyone goes, oh, okay, I get what's going on. Oftentimes we are so invested in wanting to please or satisfy or entertain the other, whether it's an audience or an individual, that we forget that simply telling them what's true for us and inviting them into our experience is going to make the whole thing better.
We've talked about addiction and ADHD. We've talked a little bit about childhood and ADHD. We've talked a little little bit about relationships and ADHD. I can imagine there absolutely are people who are jumping up and down right now thinking, that's what I have, or that's what my husband or wife has, or let me get to a doctor. And so first of all, let me ask, where would someone go to get a, a reasonably, you know, affordable evaluation in their community to see if this was a problem? What kind of professional would they need to see? Yeah, so that's a, it's a varied question. So, um, you know, the official diagnoses usually come from a medical doctor or a neuropsychologist, in a, and that's the exhaustive testing. It's done on letterhead. A lot of MDs require that in order to give medications because there's the whole issue with some people faking and abusing medications. School system also requires very formal diagnosing. Does insurance pay for things like that? I mean, a lot of people can't afford to go out and get some kind of psychological test. Yeah, I think there's limited coverage. It's, there's partial coverage, but you know, full neuropsych um, evaluation is can be a couple thousand dollars, and I don't know what the partial reimbursement. But just getting a you know, a, I'll call it an informal diagnosis, coming into you know a counselor, um, just a you know a therapist, and going through the questionnaires and realizing this is actually me, then they can take the educated thing to their primary care doctor or whatever, and say, I've been talking to my therapist, and we suspect I have ADHD let them validate the diagnosis and they can provide the medications and stuff like that. No, I can say that I know a lot of therapists who are good at various things, but I don't know that they all, every counselor, every therapist would necessarily be able to identify or know ADHD because we all have our different areas of expertise. So how would I know I was seeing someone who really understood this? Is there like a society online or an organization or how would I, you know, how would I do that? Sure. Yeah. CHAD, C-H-A-D-D, or Children and Adults with Attention Deficit Hyperactivity Disorder, is kind of the longest standing preeminent organization. They have all kinds of resources. ADA, Adult Attention Deficit Disorder Association, they're just ADD.org, also has fantastic resources. They have a, a, a clinician directory or, you know, clinicians and coaches and all that. Thank you so much. This is really important because, you know, I, I know we all go to see our local therapist, whoever we think is nice or pleasant or useful or kind, or, but this requires, I think, a little bit of expertise. Dr. Love, I know that people are going to want to talk to you further. They're going to want to gather information from the things we've talked about. Can you give them some clue? You know, is there a website that you, where they can find you? You said you do some work online. How would they access you and find you if they wanted to get help with you? Sure. My website is doctodlove, or D-O-C-T-O-D-D-L-O-V-E dot com. Try to put a bunch of information out there um, on a and, you know, related stuff. I work within the state of Georgia clinically, and then outside the state of Georgia, I do coaching, both for addiction recovery, but also ADHD. ADHD coaching has become a very large field, helping us learn some of the skills, how to compensate and work as non-neurotypicals in a neurotypical world. So I do a lot of that with people all over. So you bring up actually a last minute question. Are there people who are more focused on children and people who are more focused on adults in terms of uh, professionals? I believe so, yes. Mm-hmm. That'd be the right way to go. Indeed. Folks, this is Dr. Todd Love, who I am so grateful has taken the time to speak to us. I hope you realize that what he is saying today is that one in five addicts most likely is struggling with ADHD in some form and has gone undiagnosed. That's 20% of the population that may be able to have easier recovery and have their problems alleviated to some degree by uh, getting the right kind of help. And boy, can that make a difference. Thank you so much, Dr. Love. We'll talk again. Thank you so much, Rob, for having me. 
Hi, this is Dr. Rob again. Thank you for joining us today. If this show has inspired you to seek further information for yourself or someone you love, I encourage you to visit our treatment center website, which is www.seekingintegrity.com. There you'll find some useful information about the residential treatment we provide, which I think is some of the best, most useful, short-term effective intensive care you can find for sexual addiction and compulsivity, as well as combined drug sex or chem sex problems. On SeekingIntegrity.com, you can find some useful advice and direction for healing. And don't forget, if you want to write me about this podcast or reach any of my guests, please write me at rob at SeekingIntegrity.com. I really look forward to our next time together. Take good care.